0: Welcome to Hope Awakens. I really appreciate you joining me. Tonight, another great subject as we dig a little and try to make sense of the moment. Some very special people are watching tonight. Katie in Kokomo, Indiana has a birthday. I think it was today. Pastor David in Manistique, Michigan, had his birthday yesterday. So happy birthday to Katie in Kokomo, Indiana, and to David on the shore of Lake Michigan. We're also welcoming Joanne from Uluga, Oklahoma. Jackie's in Morgan City, Louisiana. Priscilla is in Monterey, Tennessee. Randall joins us from Ashbourne, that's in Derbyshire in England. Roberts in Siesta Key, Florida. Frankie is in is in Morgantown, Indiana. And I wanna greet Charles from the, from Grand Cayman in the Cayman Islands, and Ronald, who is in Guayaquil, Ecuador. I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're here. Thanks for being part of Hope Awakens. I'm John Bradshaw from It Is Written, and this is Hope Awakens. There's something that we do at It Is Written that I would like to tell you about before we go too much further tonight. It Is Written's ministry, especially for children, is called My Place with Jesus. And you can find My Place with Jesus at myplacewithjesus.com. And when you go there, you can find the My Place with Jesus Bible studies online. They are tremendous. You'll find nature nuggets, and you'll find Journey Through the Bible. It's a Bible reading plan, especially for children, so we can encourage our kids to read the Bible for themselves. And journey through the Bible is incentivized. When the kids do the month's reading, we'll send them a completion sticker, and before long, you'll have enough stickers, kids, to, to use very responsibly. So visit MyPlaceWithJesus.com for great things for children. Download the My Place With Jesus app and have a ton of fun, and tell the kids you know and care about, and maybe even the ones you don't care about, about Journey Through the Bible, our special Bible reading plan. Tell the kids in the Bible classes at church, tell the kids in your family. It's fabulous. Find out about it at myplacewithjesus.com. Now, hopeawakens.org is where you'll find previous presentations, you'll find resources. And let me tell you, it's where tonight you can find this very special uh, gift book, When the Lion Roars, How to Overcome Temptation. How to Overcome Temptation. To get it, go to hopeawakens.org, click on the Resources tab. You'll also find tonight's study guide there. It's one you want. It's called Living Life to the Fullest, hopeawakens.org. Hope Awakens in Spanish with my good friend Pastor Robert Costa starts this Saturday, May 9. It's called Esperanza en Jesús. Pastor Costa is the speaker and director of our Spanish language ministry, Escrito Estar. Hope Awakens in Spanish, Esperanza en Jesús, with Pastor Robert Costa starting Saturday, this Saturday, May 9. And soon, Hope Awakens will begin in Icelandic, in French, in Italian, and other languages. And we will tell you more. And keep in mind, we are every night sharing Hope Awakens with you in ASL. American Sign Language. Now it's time for your questions to ask your questions as always. Here's my good friend, Pastor Douglas Na'a, Director of SALT. It is written evangelism training program, which is great. Doug, thanks for being here.
1: Hey John, it's wonderful to be here. And again, looking forward for tonight's questions. And this is our first one. <clears throat> now, will the city of Jerusalem be restored and the temple rebuilt before the return of Jesus?
0: Well, I mean, it may, it may and it may not. But here's the thing that's important to remember, whether it is or it isn't, is of no prophetic significance. Now, I understand that there are masses of people waiting for a red heifer and for a rebuilt temple and this and that. But in terms of the fulfillment of Christian prophecy, zero significance. So I can't tell you what will and what won't be built, but I can tell you that from the Bible's standpoint, it doesn't matter one little bit.
1: Now, John, what will happen to people who have died before knowing Christ. I mean, will they be lost?
0: Well, the Bible says that a person is saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I'd hate to tell you that everyone else is lost because the Bible says in Romans 1, 21, uh, around 1, 21, in Romans 1, that people can know something about God by what they discern and perceive in nature. So I, I, I don't wanna play the role of the Holy Spirit here, but let's understand that those of us now, we have opportunity to know Jesus. That's where we find everlasting life.
1: Now, John, can you explain 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4? It reads, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Could you please explain that?
0: I wonder if that's 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse second 4. 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. Yeah, notice what it says. It's not saying that they were cast down into hell to be burned. This is this is the word Tartarus that is being used. It's 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 sort of a Uh, an equivalent to Gehenna, notice what the Bible is saying, that God has reserved them in chains of darkness or, or delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So the idea here is that while they might still exist, they are being reserved for judgment, which will be executed on them at a later time.
1: Now, will there be marriage in the new earth?
0: Oh yeah, we've already said there won't be any marriage in heaven. So somebody is saying, well, maybe I could just move it on a little bit. Look, the Bible says that in heaven, there's no marriage. There's no reason to assume then that marriage would take place in the new earth. The Bible does not say that it will. Remember, whatever God has after this world is better than what we had in this world. So don't feel like God is going to shortchange you. He's not going to do that.
1: Now you had mentioned that the earth is around about 6,000 years of age, but there are a lot of ancient civilizations that are being unearthed every day that actually date back thousands and millions of years of, uh, that millions of years old. Uh, I'm confused here.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, for one, there aren't ancient civilizations being unearthed every day, and even if you meant that figuratively, it's uh, an interesting figure. Uh, the millions of years old thing, Typically, it's bone fragments or part of a skull, or maybe it was part of a skull, and we think that this is a gazillion years old. What you're confused about is, do I listen to and take my cue from the Bible, or do I listen to a scientist, uh, understanding that the Bible refers to science falsely so-called? And you'll notice with evolutionary science, uh, the thing keeps shifting. The target moves an awful lot. Um, it's a very imprecise science. So we're not against scientists. We're certainly not against science, thank God for them. But if you come down to the place where you have a choice between the Bible and someone's opinion that contradicts this, no matter who that person is and what their opinion, stand on the word of God, which doesn't let people down.
1: Now, Jesus says, unless a person is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, John, what is the difference between being baptized by water and being baptized in the Spirit.
0: Yeah, good question. Baptized by water, water baptism, baptized in the Spirit, conversion. You might say that the baptism in the Spirit is the inward change. You, you might say that, that might be uh, a little broad. The baptism in water, being born of water, that's the outward sign, the inward sign. The inward sign is when God's Spirit takes control of you. You're baptized by the Holy Spirit. God, you're converted. And then water, that's a sign. It's a symbol of the old, you being, uh, the old you having died and being buried and then being raised up from the grave to walk in newness of life. Two very distinct things, both very, very important.
1: Now, can you clarify Revelation chapter 21, verse 4? It seems that there's tears in heaven, but not in the new earth.
0: Yeah, right. I did mention that the other night. You might have a very good point there. I, I can't imagine why we should cry in heaven. Uh, you're going to say, I'll oh, get to heaven and my dog isn't there and my mum isn't there and my neighbor's not there and so forth. I understand that, but I think when you l- think about in heaven, when our faculties have been restored and we see through the eyes of Jesus, heaven won't be a place of uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth. So I, I, I guess <clears throat> I cannot guarantee you there won't be any tears there based on the question. It's very fair. I appreciate it. But God will wipe away all tears, says that Revelation 21, 4, in reference to the new earth. Thanks for pointing that out.
1: Now, you mentioned repentance is a gift from God. And later you said that repentance is something that's needed before baptism. I've heard a famous pastor say that because repentance is a gift, we don't need to ask for it. Can you help?
0: Yeah, I don't know what you quite mean by that. We certainly need to repent. And you don't need to go to God and say, God, would you please give me the gift of repentance? He extends it to you. Accept and assume that it is yours and utilize it. However you go about it, repent and receive from God a new heart.
1: Now, you mentioned that a person must be baptized before they're saved. Now, John, how about those who die on their deathbed?
0: Ah, yes. Well, as a matter of fact, I did not say that a person has to be baptized before they are saved. I said that saved people will be baptized. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, not saved by baptism. However, it's important, and Jesus said it was important. So when you've been saved, then you're baptized. When you come to faith in Christ and He's given you the gift of salvation, then you are to be baptized. That is appropriate. To not be baptized when you know God is asking you to would be a clear indicator something is wrong in your relationship with God.
1: Now, when is it appropriate for a person to be rebaptized?
0: Well, the best person to answer that is you, as a matter of fact. Uh, every time you make a mistake, you don't want to be running to be re-baptized, you just don't. But for example, if if baptism is symbolic of a of a marriage, let's say, you and Jesus being married, there's some people who got a divorce from Jesus. They walked away. It might be appropriate at times like that to be rebaptized. If you're not sure, speak to someone, Speak to a pastor, certainly talk to God, let God be your guide. It's not something that should be taken lightly or or entered into with alarming frequency.
1: Now, if all followers of Christ have been commissioned to go and make disciples, can any follower of Christ baptize?
0: Well, this is a kind of a hypothetical. If you're in the wilderness and it's 10 minutes before before the end of the world and there's no one else to do a baptism, you know, okay. But generally speaking, no, we respect church order. Otherwise, there isn't order. Typically, this is left to those who have been ordained to gospel ministry or called to gospel ministry by God. So uh, it's a tough one because you're gonna say, what about, what about, what about? And I get that, but uh, in the absence of what abouts, no, I think it's important that we uh, respect the gospel order that is set up in the Bible.
1: Now, when Lazarus died, his breath went back to God. And then when Jesus, Called him forth back to life. Does that mean that his the breath of God, breath of life, came back to him? Is this correct?
0: Yes, yes, it is correct. That's exactly what it means. Well played.
1: Now, your topic last evening talked about uh, spiritual renewal. You re- addressed baptism. Uh, how about rebaptism? Is is that biblical?
0: It is, as a matter of fact. If you look in the Bible in Acts chapter nineteen, you read about the first five verses. You will see there are people there who were rebaptized. So it is a biblical concept.
1: Now, John, I'm learning these truths with joy and excitement. My question is, what do I do now? I want to tell my family. I want to tell everyone that I know. I'm just so full of joy and excitement with all of these truths that I've been hearing. So
0: what do I do now? Well, what you do is what you just suggested. Go tell your family, tell your friends, post it on Facebook. Let them know they can watch Hope Awakens at hopeawakens.org. Sure, share, kindly, pray, ask God to give you an opportunity to speak and to be an encouragement and live it out in your life. Just, Just go right on. Thank God for you being blessed.
1: Now, John, this question comes from Mark, who's in the third grade. He asks, when we go to heaven, will we live in houses like we do here on earth?
0: Oh, no. We live in houses that are better than they are here on earth. Jesus said, and by the way, Mark, it's really good <coughs> to have you watching. I, I hope you're doing good. Say hi to mom and dad for me. Uh, when we get to heaven, we're gonna live in mansions that Jesus is preparing. And then when we get down to the earth, we are going to live in houses that we prepare. It says in Isaiah chapter 65 around verse 21, we will build houses and inhabit them. What do you think they'll be like? I think they'll be fantastic.
1: Here's another question I'd like to read. Hello, Pastor John. Ever since I've given my life to God several years ago, I've been experiencing attacks on my mind. I'm having increasingly disturbing thoughts that are not pleasing and even offensive to God. I don't know, I don't want nor do I agree with the thoughts, but they still persist. How do I handle unwanted thoughts and does God hold these thoughts against me?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. That's a real question. Let's try to keep it real here. Um, The devil can suggest things to you. What matters now is what you do with those suggestions. I'm going to uh, suggest to you that you read the Bible, meditate on this, If there's other stuff that you've been looking at, viewing, reading, kick it out of your life if it doesn't lead you in the direction of Jesus because that opens up doors to these things, you know. Give God time, continue to pray about it. It says in the New Testament, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's not saying you kick the devil out, but run to Jesus every time, the devil will soon flee. Don't get discouraged, hang in there with God. This is real, this is that spiritual battle, but no, you don't need to feel like you have guilt in the sight of God. Uh, Welcome Jesus into your life, on an ever-increasing basis, watch this just start to disappear in the presence of Christ.
1: My mom and I were planning on a vacation to Eastern Canada to see her mom. I wanted to see my grandmother one more time before she passed. One night, I saw my grandmother at my bedroom door. She actually passed away before our trip even started. Can God send visions like this?
0: Well, God can do anything He wants, but no, that's highly unlikely. remember if if this is a, a, I'm not sure if you're suggesting it was a vision of a dead person, or if you just kind of saw someone who was not dead by then. Visions of the dead, not from God. Uh, Perhaps, perhaps God sent something to reassure you, but it's tricky ground, you know. I can't tell you what it was because I wasn't there, but generally speaking, that's not usually how God did it. Anyhow, if you know the difference between right and wrong, between what the dead are doing and what they're not, just just go right on and be grateful that something warmed your heart.
1: Now, John, is once saved, always saved, biblical?
0: Depends what you mean. Here's what a lot of people mean. A lot of people mean that once I come to Jesus, that's it, I'm saved. No matter what, nothing can change that. That's not true. Saved people can be lost. We'll look at a verse Tonight, that will indicate that written by Paul. Um, the Bible is clear. It speaks about people going back to their sins like a dog going back to its vomit. Pardon me, but that's what the Bible says. Um, no, anyone who comes to Jesus and accepts Him may later choose to turn their back on Jesus. We all know people who have done it. So the idea that I got saved back and whenever it was and nothing can change that is absolutely not true. The devil wants you to think that nothing you can do can affect your salvation. You can't change God's love for you. His heart is always towards you. But if you wanna walk away, and people do, then God will respect your choice. He won't drag you kicking and screaming to heaven. I think we would better make this the last question.
1: Yes, this is a good one. Um, Can you please explain the verse in the Bible in the book of Mark that says, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched?
0: I'll give that a shot, I believe it's Mark 9 and right around verse 43. Mark chapter nine. Yep, 43 and and 44. Here we go. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Verse 45 says much the same thing. That's correct. That fire will never be quenched. It doesn't mean it will never go out. It means there's nothing you can do to quench that fire. There's nothing you can do to put it out. Remember, hellfire is gonna burn and burn up, and it'll burn up when God says it needs to be burned up. Otherwise, you've got the Bible saying something very clear. Hell turns the devil into ashes. Wicked, uh, are turned into ashes. Uh, they melt like, like fat and so forth. You can't have the Bible saying all these things and later on one passage undoing it all. We find a harmony in the Bible. Hellfire will burn for as long as it needs to, and then those flames go out and the wicked will be ashes under our feet, Malachi wrote in Malachi chapter 4. The passage in Mark is referring to the complete and utter destruction of the wicked. Well, the complete and utter destruction of sin and anyone who connects himself or herself with sin irretrievably. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for the yes, questions.
1: Very, very good questions.
0: Great questions, and thank you so much. Keep them coming, uh, hopeawakens.org. My guest tonight is Vicki Griffin from Lifestyle Matters. We've had her here just a few nights ago. Vicki, thanks so much for being back on Hope Awakens. I hope you're going, I hope you're doing well.
2: I'm doing well, thank you very much.
0: Great, Especially I want to, to talk to you about habits because habits can be like chains, you know, they keep a person stuck and bound. What often happens when people feel like they need to make changes? Well, no, I'll put that in terms of a question. What often happens when it feels in in a person's heart like that person wants to make changes? It can be a a, a challenge. You've seen this many times. Explain it to us.
2: Well, the conviction to change can involve a a bad habit. It can involve addiction. The conviction to change can involve moving us in a direction out of mediocrity and status quo into something better, because God is always trying to improve us, and he, he wants to free us not only from the guilt of sin, but from its grip. And so there are several things that go on in our heads when we're called to change. Um, you know, habits are, they involve pain and discomfort. Bad habits are painful, and they, they cause a degree of discomfort, but so does change. And in both of those scenarios, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, in one case, it's a train. In the other case, it's Christ and it's hope. And so I love the way Paul describes habit change. He calls it in Second Timothy, coming to our senses. Uh, in, in the book of Philippians, he says we have the prize of the call toward the goal of the upward call of God. So the the call to change involves some difficulty and pain. And here's what we do automatically. There are three degrees of denial that we can go through so quickly, we don't even know it's happening. So the first degree of denial is, "Eh, it's not important. It's not important. And and we just dismiss it. The second degree of denial, the roots go a little deeper. "Mm, It's important, but it's not urgent. I'm gonna put it on the busiest day of the calendar, which is tomorrow. And then we're sunk. The third degree of denial is even more serious and that is, it's not possible. I've been messed up for too long. It's been too hard for too long. My brain is gone. I can't do it. And, and that's the deepest level of denial. But Jesus Christ came. He says, those that are whole need not a physician. And so when the spirit of God convicts us of the need of change, he, he's the only one that can change our heart. He's the only one that can change our motives, but he can't do and won't do what we have to do. And that is recognize our need and accept the challenge from God and begin to make those choices.
0: Okay. If, if you're going to change your habits, what's the first thing you need to do?
2: Well, that's a really good question. The very first habit, Vince Lombardi said this, the very first habit to overcome is quitting, uh, giving up. and and having an attitude of giving up is very typical and it's very easy. It it in itself can become a a, a bad habit. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, some people are so constituted that if there were only one swamp in the desert, they would soon be up to their neck in it. And if there were only one lion in the desert, they would hear its roar. And so this constant state of negativity, being addicted to, uh, you know, this internal negativity that we can't change, everything's bad, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, think I'll go eat worms. This this is the first level of change that has to be addressed. The Bible says, ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. But then there's a strategy for establishing new habits.
0: Okay, explain that to me.
2: Well, it's very, very important because uh, God not only has the power and he not only has promises, but he also has a plan. And so when we talk about habit change or reaching goals, there there is outcome verse, outcome-based change versus identity-based change. So outcome-based change says, I'm going to read a book a month if it kills me. I hate reading but I'm going to do it because I know it's good for me. Uh, it's the person that says, I'm going to lose 50 pounds. I hate eating healthy. I don't like exercising. I'm going to hate every minute of this. I'm going to be miserable every step. But as soon as I reach that goal, I'm going to be happy. It's going to be kumbaya, and it's going to be transformational. Well, once in a while, it happens that way. So an outcome-based goal is 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 really focused at the end point. Uh, the plan, is how you get there. The process is how you get there. That's really important. But identity-based change is different. Identity-based change says, I'm going to become a reader. So it's a change in your entire mindset. So let's say I set a goal, say for uh, 10,000 steps a day. And every single day, I miss the 10,000 steps except once in a while. That means I'm only going to be happy once in a while. The rest of the time, I'm miserable and I'm on a trajectory for giving up. But if I say, you know, I have a goal, an outside goal of 10,000 steps, but every day I'm going to add to my identity of being a fit person. God has called me to an upward call. And now I'm going to see myself as a fit person instead of a couch potato and you begin to work toward that goal. And some days you get 2,000 steps in, and sometimes you get 4,000, which is two miles, or 6,000, which is three miles. So every day, instead of have failing every day, you're adding to your identity every day. Every day that you read more in that book, every day that you pay a little bit more attention, spend a little more time in study. So you are adding to the new identity that you have in Jesus Christ.
0: I love it. I've got one more question for you, about 60 seconds. I've heard you say that miracles come in cans. Now, what do you mean by that?
2: Well, if you could go to the grocery store, face mask and all, and buy a miracle, would you do it? Well,
0: of course um, would, you would. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: Miracles come in cans, Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. So practice makes permanent. Practice, practice, practice. You'll get your miracle.
0: Outstanding. I love it. Vicki Griffin from Lifestyle Matters. And I know we can find you at lifestylematters.com with lots of material, lots of great stuff. Thank you so much for joining me tonight on Hope Awakens. Thank you. Magnificent. I hope you were blessed. I know I was. Let's pray. And then we're going to dive into the Bible. Father in heaven, bless us as we open your word tonight. We come to you with our, our hearts open and with a willingness to see clearly through the haze that the future so often looks like. Guide us now, we pray. And we thank You in Jesus' name, amen. If the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us anything at all, it's taught us that life is fragile. Suddenly people began dying, people who otherwise would have lived. While it seems we don't have a great understanding as to why this is, in some cases even very healthy people have been lowered by the coronavirus. Friend told me about a 50-year-old marathon-running doctor who is on a ventilator seriously ill because of this illness. It isn't supposed to be that that way. Average life expectancy in the United States is right around 78 and a half. You should be concerned because that's down a little. A child born today in Japan can expect to live on average to 83, longest of any country in the world. Of course, in the beginning, we were created to live how long? Forever. Early chapters of the Bible tell us about people who lived a long time. Methuselah lived in 969. Next, Jared, Methuselah's grandfather, lived in 962. Noah died at 950. Adam lived to be 930. And Seth, Adam and Eve's son, died at the age of 912. Today's 80 or so doesn't compare too well, does it? But it's true that more people are living longer. There are now about half a million centenarians in the world, people who've lived to a hundred or older, close to 100,000 of them in the United States alone. Japan has fewer, about three quarters of that amount, but centenarians exist in Japan at about twice the rate they do in the United States. Although an expert on aging from New York City's Albert Einstein College of Medicine is adamant That 115 is the longest a person is gonna live. The oldest person currently alive is a Japanese woman named Kane Tanaka, who is 117. She's the eighth oldest person ever in modern times. Now that's verified, of course. A wonderful lady I know recently turned 110. She was taking classes on campus at Walla Walla University at the age of 99. So today, in the absence of a vaccine for COVID-19, in the absence of a plethora of effective drugs, what should you do? It's worth thinking about. The average U.S. male has a 40% chance of developing cancer during his lifetime. For women, it's just a little lower. That's true across the Western world. Massive amounts of people are coming down with diabetes. It's said that one in 10 Americans has diabetes. Again, that's about average for advanced countries. And then there's stroke and heart disease. About 650,000 Americans die from heart disease each year. One in four deaths. Heart disease costs the United States more than $220 billion a year. So what do you do? Do you accept this and roll on and just hope for the best? Well, that was never God's intention. And I want you to see that God has given you survival keys. No, there's no guarantee you won't die. You can't guarantee you'll delay your funeral But God has a plan, and we'll look at it together to give you the brightest future possible. Surely we want to do all we can to give ourselves the best chance against COVID-19 or any other illness that threatens to not just cut our life short, but to compromise the life that we have. It's been said that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Or for those more comfortable with the metric system, 28.3495 28.3495 grams of prevention is worth 453.592 grams of cure. But let's first understand that God has a plan for everyone, including you. Jesus said in John 6:51, "'I am the living bread which came down from heaven. "'If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever.'" Back in 2013, Google created the California Life Company, Calico. Its mission is to find out what it takes to live longer and to get people on that track. A Google engineer said that by 2030, computers the size of blood cells will be placed within humans, and those devices will be connected to the cloud. He said, a lot of our thinking will be non-biological, and it will be backed up, so that if part of it gets wiped away, you can recreate it. We'll be able to extend our lives indefinitely." He said that by 2045, humans will be able to live forever. Funny, isn't it? God has already given us the key to living forever. Jesus went on to say in John 6:51, "...and the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world." That is real health food. God wants you to get the most out of life. He doesn't want second best for you. He don't want you just to survive. He wants you to thrive. It comes as a, as a surprise to many people to discover that God has a plan for you physically, emotionally, as well as spiritually. Jesus said in John ten ten, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. But our challenge is that we spend an awful lot of time Harming ourselves. We know a lot of what we eat is bad for us. California is putting warnings on coffee saying it causes cancer. The World Health Organization has stated processed meat causes cancer. Alcohol is cancer causing. We know the same is true for smoking. The average American consumes 70 pounds of sugar a year when the experts say we should be consuming less than a third of that. In England, a scientist from Newcastle University recently warned that millions of people who today are middle-aged will just 20 years from now be dealing with four major diseases. Multimorbidity, this is known as. That's for each person. Four for each one. Diseases such as cancer, diabetes, dementia. Britons are being warned that they're about to collide with these diseases. And the reason? Our diet and lifestyle obesity and inactivity, things that we're doing to ourselves. In other words, things that could be avoided and prevented. Part of the problem is that we're not good at thinking ahead and disciplining ourselves. Eating this, drinking that, it's true, even smoking this won't do you much harm today, but over time, it may kill you. You'll die early. You may well die miserably. Think about the people, and that's not all, of course, who are dealing with the pandemic and saying, I'm high risk, but if I'd made different decisions, I wouldn't be. Well, what's interesting is that the Bible says there's coming a time of trouble that is gonna make this pandemic look like small stuff, a time of trouble that is gonna make the inconveniences of isolation and social distancing look petty. Don't you think we ought to do all we can to prepare for that? You know we should, which is why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, you've heard people say, it's my body. Well, that's not quite true. It's God's. He owns it, and Jesus died for you. We were bought at a price. And people say, you got to die of something. Might as well die happy. Except for one thing, you might have to die of something, but you don't have to die of everything. And precious few people die sick and happy. If you want to die happy, die in your old age with your grandchildren around you. If you want to die happy, die as healthy as you can be. You feel better when you feel better. And God's plan for you is that you prosper, that you do well. What many people don't know is this. There's a connection between our physical health and spiritual well-being. John wrote, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. See the connection there? Like the old saying, healthy body, healthy mind. God wants you to prosper spiritually and physically. Paul wrote, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified." Athletes don't train for success at Dairy Queen or McDonald's. It takes discipline to succeed in athletic events. It takes temperance to achieve at a high level. Control. The athlete who wants to win takes care of his or her body. Carefully, Paul says that in the same way, the believer is to discipline the body and bring it into subjection. What does that mean? It means that sometimes you see a piece of chocolate cake, you say, no, you bring the body into subjection. You are tempted to drink something you know isn't good for you. You say no. You bring the body into subjection. The body ought to serve the mind, not the other way around. The same is true in other areas of life. Eating is just, well, eating is just about the one area where people feel it's okay to do whatever they want. We ought to make decisions that, no, we don't do that. Don't eat this. Don't drink that. If it's going to damage our health and therefore damage us spiritually. Notice Paul makes a very clear connection. He says that if he isn't temperate, he'll be disqualified. The King James says, cast away. The Greek word is adokemos, reprobate, not standing the test, lost. Paul connects temperance with spiritual health. Now, the thing is, I know it can be tough. There are some things that just taste so good, or so people think. And once you dip your toe into that pond, it's, it's not easy to keep yourself from plunging in at the deep end. So I want to show you some of the principles God has because we have just learned it's really important to preserve your health in the best condition possible. Remember, God offers us eternal life and a more abundant life in this world. Revelation 14:7, "Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters." How do we give glory to God? Notice what this says. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What we put in our bodies affects the function of our mind. We're affected emotionally and spiritually. People getting ready to spend eternity with God, well, that becomes tremendously important. Look at what Harvard Medical School published. Let me read this for you. Just like an expensive car, your brain can be damaged if you ingest anything other than premium fuel. If substances from low-premium fuels, such as what you get from processed or refined foods, get to the brain, it has little ability to get rid of them. Diets high in refined sugars, for example, are harmful to the brain. In addition to worsening your body's regulation of insulin, they also promote inflammation and oxidative stress. Multiple studies have found a correlation between a diet high in refined sugars and impaired brain function and even a worsening of symptoms of mood disorders, such as depression. Isn't that something? Very interesting. The writer continues, studies have compared traditional diets like the Mediterranean diet and the traditional Japanese diet to a typical Western diet, and they've shown that the risk of depression is 25 to 35% lower in those who eat a traditional diet. And then this is how the article ends. Try eating a clean diet for two to three weeks. That means cutting out all processed foods and sugars. See how you feel. Then slowly introduce foods back into your diet one by one and see how you feel. When some people go clean, they cannot believe how much better they feel both physically and emotionally, and how much worse they then feel when they reintroduce the foods that are known to enhance inflammation. Everyone's involved in a battle for the mind. We've got a clear Bible example of how this works an example of how the function of your spiritual nature is impacted by your physical nature. Long before he wrote the book of Daniel, a young Daniel was taken captive, taken as a slave, removed from Jerusalem, taken to Babylon, where he was offered Babylonian food, which he knew he couldn't eat in good conscience. Daniel 1 and verse 8 says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. When encouraged to eat the food offered by the king of Babylon, Daniel kept his body pure out of honor for God. As a result, he was able to deliver some of the most profound prophetic messages ever given. There would have been no book of Daniel, if Daniel wasn't committed to the principles God gave him. He kept his mind clear, and so he excelled physically and spiritually. And God used him in an absolutely amazing way. Scientists tell us the frontal lobe of the brain is the seat of judgment, reasoning, intellect, and the will. Damage your brain, you damage your judgment, making it very difficult to have the relationship with God that He wants you to have. So what are some of the ways that we can damage our mind? Obviously, the Christian doesn't want to be using illegal drugs. They cause an immense amount of damage. They affect the mind. Thank God that he is able to give somebody victory over drugs that destroy the mind and the body. He's able to deliver people from addiction. Addiction is a monster, but a person can get clean. Opioid addiction is so difficult. In the United States, it's been claiming close to 50,000 lives a year opioids easily cause physical dependence. Hey, if you need help, get help. There are people who will help you. If you know someone battling addiction, keep in mind that addiction often just creeps up on people. It's very difficult. And pray because God does great things. It's difficult and not every addict is there because he or she was reckless and irresponsible. And even if they were, they'd still need help and prayer. But of course there are legal substances which affect the mind and therefore lessen our ability to connect with God. A University of Washington study released two years ago stated that there is, and I quote, no safe level of drinking alcohol. The study showed that in 2016, nearly 3 million deaths globally were attributed to alcohol use including 12% of all deaths in males between 15 and 49 years of age. Study after study has shown that if you're a drinker, there is no reduction in drinking that makes it safe. Even light drinking increases the likelihood of breast cancer in women. Binge drinking can alter your genes. The talk you hear about moderate drinking being good for you, God does not back that up. Proverbs 20 verse one says, "'Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise." Why would God say that? Because He knows and He wants the best for you. Here's what alcohol does. "...do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things." Proverbs 23. We know alcohol is dangerous. Think of the traffic deaths and injuries it causes. So much domestic violence is alcohol-fueled. Prisons are full of people who've committed crimes under the influence. Alcohol is related to immorality. There is no question about that. Ah, you say, but didn't Jesus drink wine? What was it Paul told Timothy? Well, he said this, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Is it possible Paul could have been advising Timothy to drink alcohol for his upset stomach? Not in light of what the Bible says. Grape juice, sure, but alcohol? Grape juice may help us to settle an upset stomach, but Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, not so much. And then, of course, there's the wedding feast where Jesus turned water into wine. It's interesting people just assume that Jesus made alcohol. But the one who inspired the Bible writers to speak of the dangers of alcohol didn't recommend alcohol use. Of course he didn't create a hundred or more gallons of liquor at the very end of a wedding feast. The key you're looking for is right here in Isaiah 65. As the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake that I may not destroy them all. Notice the Bible says there's a blessing in it when it's on the vine. Now that's grape juice. So look, no one wants to condemn anybody. I don't want you to feel condemned. I want you to get the keys to unlock some of this stuff. How can a person accustomed to drinking alcohol learn to live without it? Remember this, Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God has the power to deliver anyone from alcohol dependence or alcohol use. That's not to say you shouldn't get support, see a counselor, be part of a group. Those are good things to do but the strength you're looking for to overcome this comes from God, and He will give it to you. Okay, I've just started meddling. Something else that damages frontal lobe function is nicotine. One in every five deaths in the United States is caused by cigarette smoking. Almost half a million deaths a year because of cigarettes. That's just one country. A study in the Netherlands showed that almost one in four heavy smokers don't make it to their 65th birthday compared to one in 14 non-smokers who don't live to 65. Medical researchers say each cigarette shortens your life by 14 and a half minutes. Warnings on cigarette packets are graphic and they are unambiguous. So what do you do when you want to quit? What do you want to do when you want to start again without this in your life? Well, you pray, you thank God He's able to get you off nicotine. Thank Him that He will and remember what the Bible says, and claim what the Bible says. Back to Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When you want to quit, turn to Jesus. Jesus is able to break those chains thoroughly and absolutely completely. Is a cigarette stronger than Jesus Christ? No, it certainly isn't. I want to suggest something to you. Now listen very carefully. If you're going to quit, nicotine. There's another in. if you want your mind to operate at optimum levels. You need to know about this. I care about you. Caffeine disrupts the chemistry of the brain by affecting levels of neurotransmitters that keep the brain in balance. It leads to a lot of different problems, even mental illnesses and disorders, including depression. Listen to what medical experts say. Caffeine is the world's most widely used mind-altering drug. That's from Johns Hopkins. What we have found is that caffeine interacts with stress and intensifies it. That's from Duke University. Caffeine is the drug of choice for nine out of 10 Americans. Causes all kinds of problems. So let me remind you, when you're battling alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, some of these things are dragging you to an early exit. When you're not living the life God wants you to live, when you want to give it all to Jesus... When you know there's better for you, remember there's someone in heaven. He's there tonight. He died for you, died to give you power and freedom from addiction, freedom from habits that will damage you. Jesus is more powerful than any addiction. Came to this world to give you life to the full. Give it to Jesus right now. Let him give you victory. He said, I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Life more abundantly. Yet we live in a very sick world. Health problems are getting worse. But notice what God said. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep all of His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. When Israel left Egypt, they left behind a nation groaning under the weight of illnesses. Tests reveal Egyptian mummies. Uh, individuals who died of illnesses that affect us today, illnesses like cancer and heart disease. But God said, hey, you listen to me and you'll be well and you'll enjoy good health. Today, we're killing ourselves, digging our graves with our teeth, hard to give glory to God while destroying the high point of His creation. Back in the beginning, God told Adam and Eve how to take care of themselves. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth. And every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Until the flood, animal flesh wasn't to be eaten, wasn't in God's original plan. Worked out well. Methuselah lived to be almost a thousand, but from then till now, huge change. Was there reason in what God did? Oh, sure. Before the flood, Noah and his family and the animals got on the ark. God said, You shall take with you seven of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. After the flood, it was permissible to eat animals. God gave instruction though. Why? Sevens and twos. Some of them Noah would eat when he got off the ark, perhaps. He wasn't gonna eat anything unclean. He might wanna sacrifice to God. And again, he wouldn't sacrifice an unclean animal. You saw the distinction between clean and unclean existed way back then, long before Moses. But God repeated the instruction to Israel. Look in the book of Leviticus. It says in verse three, among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Verse four, nevertheless, these shall you not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. The camel, Because it chews the cud, but it doesn't have cloven hooves, it's unclean to you. So there you go, camel is off the menu. Next verse says that rabbits are unclean. Verse seven says, and the swine, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, it doesn't chew the cud, it is unclean. Pigs are unclean. I saw a shocking report of a woman who was told she had a brain tumor. When the doctors opened her head and looked into her brain, they found a parasitic worm in her brain. No tumor but a parasitic worm. How'd it get there? It started with eating undercooked pork, which is frequently found to have these things in it. This is why God says, avoid pork, avoid the diseases of the Egyptians. Here's a thought, wouldn't be any swine flu if people weren't eating swine. And if the current pandemic came from eating bats, if that were true, that's what they said way back then, that would be another indicator it's better to leave that food alone. Now you say, wasn't this just for the Jews? Hold on a minute. No, it wasn't just for the Jews. It came along way before the Jews. The Bible also says it will still be important when Jesus comes back. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with His chariots like a whirlwind to render His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For by the fire and by His sword, the Lord will judge all flesh, and the slain of the Lord will be many. Notice those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves, to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst eating, swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord." Did you notice that? It'll be an abomination when Jesus comes back. Now, back to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 9. "'These you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, that you may eat. But all in the seas are in the rivers that don't have fins and scales, all that move in the water of any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination. Now, what does that include and why? You know that crayfish and shrimp and crabs are bottom feeders. They eat the junk off the bottom of the sea floor. Oysters and other shellfish are filter feeders. They filter the water in the ocean and take out the impurities. So when you eat them, you're eating the impurities. People wanting to clean up Chesapeake Bay on the East Coast have been saying the best thing to do would be to put in lots of oysters. Each oyster can filter almost 50 gallons of water a day. And where does all that impurity go to? It ends up right on your plate. Verse 13, "...these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten." They're an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, they're unclean. You wouldn't want to eat one of these things at Thanksgiving or Christmas. Now, someone's asking, didn't it change at the cross? Well, let me ask you this. For whom did Jesus die? Did Jesus die to cleanse pigs? No, Jesus died to cleanse sinners. The pig the day before the cross is the same the day after the cross. And no difference between a Jewish stomach and a Gentile stomach. The blessing of good health and the blessing of a clear mind is for all people at all times. It's important that we learn to get over the habits that destroy body and soul. All right, all right, stop the, stop the presses. What about Peter's vision? Didn't he have a dream? Let's look at that together. It's in Acts chapter 10. Now careful, too many times there's a tendency to let one passage undo everything else the Bible says on something. So let's look at this carefully. Acts 10, verse 9. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. He became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and he saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. A voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. A voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, while Peter wondered what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry at Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. Peter didn't understand what this meant. You know what happened though? A Gentile was directed by God to send somebody to get this Jew and bring him to his house. Gentiles were considered unclean. Peter reflected on this and spoke to them and he said in verse 28, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me I should not call any man common or unclean. Verse 34. Peter said, in truth, I perceive God shows no partiality. He's no respecter of persons. God was not telling Peter to eat anything on the menu. He was saying the gospel was to go to the Gentiles. Peter shouldn't make a distinction between people based on their race. God wasn't talking about the menu. He was talking about Peter's heart because Peter was bigoted. Peter was a racist and God was telling him not to be, to take the gospel to people he had regarded as unclean. You know, the, the thing was repeated three times. Why? Because three people came to Peter. The Bible's clear. God won't withhold anything good from you. The enemy of souls, though, wants to ruin you. He's got a counterfeit for everything, including God's plan for good health. He says, just eat and drink. Do what you want. God says, do it to the glory of God. The devil says, Obey your taste buds. The result is heart disease, cancer, stroke, minds that can't comprehend the things of God and wander aimlessly in the conflict of these last days. We've been privileged to live on the edge of the return of Jesus. and God wants to deliver you from whatever habit is holding you down. Is it something you're eating? God says, I can take that. Something you're drinking, God says, I can remove that. Is it something in your mind? Is it an attitude? Is it a desire? God says, I can deliver you. And I can give you now the assurance that you can look forward to everlasting life free from whatever habit is dragging you down. Let's pray for deliverance tonight. Some of us, we need to be delivered from what we're eating and drinking. For others, we need to be delivered about what we're thinking, let's pray and know that God will save us and free us. Pray with me now, our Father and our God, how grateful we are for deliverance through Jesus. Deliver us from whatever it might be that's holding us down and keeping us back. Keep and bless us now. Thank you for freedom, freedom in Jesus. We claim it and we thank you for it in Jesus' name you might want to say with me, amen and amen. Thanks for joining me. See you next time for more on Hope Awakens. God bless you.